It is very special to be here with you this morning um, on this occasion, and um, I'm sure you can appreciate as well. Um, there's a, uh, it's been quite a difficult time selecting the passage, but before we get into that, um, maybe we should just pray together briefly once more. Heavenly Father, we do, we do magnify your name. We, we worship you this morning, and we're going to do that from the scriptures, Lord, which are inspired by your spirit, and speak to us what you would have us to hear. Lord, we ask that um, you would stir our hearts this morning to understand and to be prompted to praise and thanksgiving and uh, even something new uh, that, that might come to us through the preaching of your word. Um, Lord, give me fluency and fervency and uh, please give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Amen. Um, the number 50, as you might imagine, is not an easy one to think about when you're thinking about what kind of texts to um, select from the scriptures and preach on. 50 is not one of the same biblical numbers as 7 or 12 or 40 um, that has that special significance to it, except for the Old Testament reference to 50 as the year of Jubilee, obviously, and uh, remembering every 50 years God's faithfulness to his people. And so that was initially where I was thinking of, of taking us this morning, but In my personal uh, reflections and quiet times, I've been um, concentrating on the epistle of 1 John. And um, over a couple of months, the more I thought about it, the more obvious it became to me that this is the perfect uh, letter for us today. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, One is because of the author and date of that letter. Um, As you probably know, the epistle of 1 John was written by the apostle John, John was one of those three of the kind of inner circle of Jesus' disciples. There was Peter and James and then obviously John. And um, what you might not realise about the epistle of 1 John is that by the time he writes this, he's a very old man. He's probably in his 80s or early 90s. And he's likely writing then at the end of the first century, decades after Jesus called him to be a disciple. And so of the 12 apostles that Jesus called, um, all of them have died by this point, except John. And he's writing just after 50 years um, beyond the time at which Jesus was uh, crucified, buried, raised, and ascended. So it's been a little over 50 years since those events, a little over 50 years since Pentecost and the establishment of the New Covenant Church. And he's living in the region of Ephesus, um, and soon he will be exiled to the Isle of Patmos under uh, the Roman Emperor Domitian, and there he'll live out the remainder of his days. But before that exile happens, he writes this letter to the churches in the region of Ephesus. And throughout the the epistle of 1 John, you can really see the statesmanship of its author. Um, He clearly has uh, the heart of an elder towards his congregation. In chapter 2, for example, he talks to his audience as little children. And throughout the epistle, there is that same warmth. There's a kind of grandfatherly affection in his writing. Um, And he states a couple of times throughout his letter his purpose in writing, and that's characteristic of John. Um, You don't need to turn there, but in in, um, chapter 1, verse 4, he writes, and these things are being written so that our joy may be complete. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. And chapter 5, verse 13, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
So there's a, there's a concern here. There's a grandfatherly affection for his congregation, for their joy, for their holiness, for the assurance of salvation that he longs them, for them to have. And so I think it's appropriate for us to see almost ourselves as the audience for that letter today. Uh, like that congregation, we're here 50 years after the establishment of the church. A long time has passed. Members have come and members have gone. But we can draw great encouragement and challenge from uh, 1 John because it's written to that church at a similar point in time. And then there's another kind of aspect um, of relevance here, and that is really the context in which John writes the letter. Uh, He's addressing the church because the church is under assault. It's under assault from a godless culture, and it's under assault from the ever-present danger of false teaching. Just like in our day, uh, in Ephesus there were, amongst the church, um, false teachers that denied the true nature of Jesus as both fully man and fully God. And those false teachers were denying essentially the doctrine of the Incarnation. And we know of such teachers today. But those teachers also held wrong views about the role of Christians and what a Christian life should look like. And we'll see how John confronts these. Um, But the culture is also particularly relevant here because Ephesus was kind of a melting pot for New Age um, thinking, philosophies, religion. It was a a culture of religious syncretism or inclusivism. Um, If you like, the catch cry of the culture would be something like, any truth will do. As long as you're not dogmatic about what you believe, we'll accept you. So it was basically a a culture that was tolerant of everything except intolerance. And John writes into that culture with absolute clarity and dogmatism to confront errors of doctrine and to arrest any potential slide of the church into worldliness. And the way he does this is really by setting out a series of truths that are essential to the Christian life. And he lays these down with absolute certainty, one after the other, He sets out the straight and the narrow road in terms of Christian doctrine and in terms of Christian morals. And so in doing so, he kind of invites us to compare our beliefs and our lives against the absolutes that he sets down and ask if we are walking in this straight and narrow road. And so I think it's the perfect epistle to mark um, the occasion of today as we look back at 50 years of faithfulness from God in this church And ahead to whatever comes in the next 50 years, we can consider the message of 1 John and ask ourselves, are we holding unswervingly to these truths? Are these things true of us? We'll remind ourselves today of the essential truths of the Christian faith and hopefully this can serve as a guide for whatever lies ahead for this church. So please, with that as introduction, turn with me to 1 John starting in chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses. And just briefly before I do, um, it's probably worth a a quick comment on the the way that uh, this epistle is structured. It's not quite the same as other epistles in the New Testament where you have kind of a front-loaded section on doctrine and then a a back-loaded section that describes what the application of that doctrine looks like in everyday life. It's a little different in that it kind of spirals around three themes several times. And each time it reaches this theme, it takes us a little deeper, a little further. And those three themes are doctrine, obedience, and love. So if you wanted to kind of summarize the book of 1 John, those would be the three key themes around which he spirals. And with that in mind now, let's, um, let's take a look at uh, the first four verses. 
1 John 1, 1 to 4. He writes, and I'm, I'm reading from the ESV. Um, that, which we have, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John opens this letter by setting forth a series of fundamental truths about the Christian doctrine. Uh, And when you read through the letter of 1 John, it's an interesting exercise to do. Take a kind of note of which doctrines appear over and over again, maybe in slightly different um, emphases, but there are repeated key doctrines, and there's roughly five to ten of those. And the ones that I'd like us to focus on this morning are these. So if, you've, if, you, if it's helpful to you to jot out a kind of sermon outline, we could talk about the three key themes of 1 John, the doctrines, the obedience that he exhorts, and the love that he exhorts. And then on the first point of the doctrines, these are the core ones that he circles around. He circles around the incarnation, the trinity, sin and judgment, the atonement, the sonship of Jesus Christ, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The incarnation, the trinity, sin and judgment, the atonement, the sonship of Jesus Christ, and the second coming of Christ. These are the doctrines that John is determined for the church to remember. I trust you... um, know the story of Robinson Crusoe. Um, You may remember that it's a story about a 17th century Englishman who goes sailing and um, he survives a shipwreck off the coast of Trinidad and uh, he's marooned there on a small island in the Caribbean. And his ship is kind of grounded on the reef off the island and uh, the entire crew is lost there except for him. And during the early days of his... um, of his survival on the island, he makes a dozen or so trips out to the wreckage of his ship and each time that he goes he's determined to salvage something that's a critical item for his survival. And eventually the ship is is swept away by another storm. And what he's left with from those 12 trips is really a, a collection or a treasure of essential goods like food and ammunition and tools and, and these are really his key to the survival in the island that occupies the remainder of the story. In a sense, we can think of these six core truths of one John like those treasures salvaged from Crusoe's ship. These are carefully selected by the apostle because they are essential for the Christian life. These are the things you must believe to be a Christian. And the first one that we've already seen in the opening, letters, uh, the opening verse of the letter is that of the incarnation of God becoming a man. At the very outset of this letter, John is determined to remind this church or these cluster of churches that their faith is grounded in a real historical person. John says several times there, we or I, I heard, I saw, I touched. And what was it that he heard and saw and touched? Well, he says at the end of verse 1 there, can you see it? What was it that he saw? It was the word of life. He says twice that the thing that he heard, saw, touched was the word of life, and which leaves us, I guess, with the question, what is the word of life? Well, he gives us another clue in verse 2 by saying that whatever that word of life was, it was originally with the Father. 
and it became manifest or like discernible, touchable to people, to John. So if we follow the logic, the previous, uh, this word of life was previously invisible, untouchable, undiscernible while it was with the Father. But at some point in time in human history, this word became manifest. And then in verse 3, he completes the thought and he says, this word of life is the Son, Jesus Christ. The one who was with the Father and became manifest was God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ. In both John's Gospel and then in John's Epistle, he is determined to teach that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, was with the Father but became a man, Jesus. And John heard him and saw him and touched him and he's determined to remind his readers of that. And that really leads us into the second key doctrine that John observes, which is around the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is uh, foundational to true Christianity. All that is really good and right and proper in our religion flows from that doctrine. And interestingly, all false religions deny that. And so it's unsurprising that John selects that as an essential doctrine. And you remember the Bible is absolutely clear about this, right? From beginning to end, there is one God. You might remember that uh, famous passage, uh, sometimes called the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4, which is... Um, the, the centerpiece of the prayer that the Jews still recite. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Christian faith is a, a faith that believes in one God. But the Bible is also clear that that one God exists and has always existed as a trinity of three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all simultaneously coexistent, they are all simultaneously active. They don't appear sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Spirit. That's the heresy of modalism. No, there are three coexisting persons. And so John addresses these, this doctrine in, in the fourth chapter, if you want to flick there, verse 9 down through 13. And we see each of these persons addressed. So 1 John 4, uh, verses 9 to 13. And notice um, the reference to God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but also pay attention to something that's described about what their functions are. He writes in verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God the Father sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God the Father, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So all three persons of the Trinity are reflected there. Um, And importantly, you can uh, see some of the unique functions or roles of the different members of the Trinity. So God the Father is described as the author of salvation. John reminds us that it was him that was the one that loved us enough to organize the plan of salvation by sending his son. God the Son is the one who then completes that work of salvation. He is the one that comes into the world, the one who propitiates our sin. He completes the work necessary to save sinful men. And then the Spirit is revealed to us as the seal or assurance of salvation for those who believe. John says that we know we have been saved because the Spirit abides in us and he is our seal of salvation. So, test number two. 
of true Christianity is the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three persons, each with unique function. Which moves us then to the third doctrinal truth that John addresses, and that is of sin. We've understood something of who God is, that he is a trinity, and that the second person of the trinity became a man, Jesus, in the incarnation. And now we begin to see why he came. Why did God become man? The answer lies in the doctrine of sin. And if you read through 1 John's letter as a whole, uh, you'll be struck by some very strong statements about sin. The first of these appears in chapter 1, uh, verses 8 through 10. So turn with me there, um, if you can, please. 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. He writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I said before that John has a sort of tenderly affection towards his congregants that he's writing to. One of the other striking things about John's letters is his absoluteness, the black and white nature in which he writes. Um, He doesn't pussyfoot around. There are some doctrines about which there are just no two ways about it, and John presents those clearly for our remembrance. He says here, plain as day, in these verses, everyone has sinned. And there's kind of two pervasive um, false teachings that John's trying to address here. One you might be aware of as the um, false um, doctrine, which is known sometimes as sinless perfection, where a Christian might say, I used to sin before, and then I was saved, and now I no longer sin. If you look at verse 8, it's very clear, John says, if we say we have no sin now, we deceive ourselves. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking in the present tense. He says, if you say we have no sin current, now, at this moment, we lie. We cannot profess to be a Christian and have no sin. And then the other error that he confronts is in verse 10. And that's for those who say they've never sinned. And he says there, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's a very simple confrontation. Um, If we say we have not sinned at any time in the past, we make God out to be a liar. Because God's assessment of us is that we have sinned. You may remember that famous um, summary of this doctrine that Paul presents to us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's kind of the first movement in which John addresses the doctrine of sin. And the second comes later in 1 John 3, and I encourage you to flick forward to 1 John 3, verses 4 to 9. And this time he tightens the screw, he turns it a little deeper. 1 John 3, 4-9. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that he, and he's speaking of Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. They're hard-hitting words, aren't they? Honestly, in the last couple of months, as I've been reflecting on the passage of 1 John as a whole, this has been probably the most uh, pointed thing that's been both a source of um, somber warning, but also great encouragement to me from the epistle. And he starts out by defining in in verse 4 what sin is. And if you're ever looking to uh, explain to someone most clearly, most concisely what sin is, the, the best definition for it in the New Testament is there in 1 John 3, 4. He says, sin is the breaking of God's law. It's the breaking of his commandments. And we've already seen from when we look back at chapter 1 that all are guilty of that, both in the past and in the present. All have sinned, except for one person referenced in verse 5. Who is that? Jesus. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him alone there is no sin. There is only one truly righteous person, only one who never broke God's law, and that is the incarnated Son of God, Jesus. Then he turns the screw deeper again, and he moves from the definition to the practice of sin. Look with me at those verses in verses 6 and 9. Look at some of the things he says there. He says, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. In verse 8 he says, whoever makes a practice of sin is of the devil, And then in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. This is not a hard passage to understand, uh, but it is a hard passage to hear. John's doctrine is clear. You cannot claim to be a Christian while making a practice of sinning. You know, repeat that. You cannot claim to be a Christian while making a practice of sinning. I've heard another author put it elegantly this way. He said, Christians can fall into sin, but they don't live in it. When John talks about the practice of sinning, we intuitively understand what that means, don't we? Because we know what the word practice means. Um, To practice something means you deliberately and regularly spend time on that thing. When you practice a musical instrument or when you go to cricket practice, what are you doing? You're setting aside time for that thing. Deliberately, regularly to do it true christians cannot do this with sin we cannot regularly and deliberately break god's law there has to be evidence of striving against sin of putting sin to death or as john further describes it he says instead of practicing sin what christians should be practicing is righteousness true christians practice but they practice righteousness not sin And then he even goes as far as to say, those who practice sin are the children of the devil. All people have one of two fathers. Either their father is God, and that is evidenced by their practice of righteousness, or their father is the devil, and they practice sin. Which brings us to a question. How then is the Christian to respond when he or she sees sin in their own life? And the answer that Tom's already shared for us from this marvellous epistle is captured for us in verse 9. The right response to sin is to confess it. This brings great hope. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. Friends, the right response to sin is not to ignore it, not to deny it, not to lean into it and practice it. The right response to sin is to confess it. That word for confess is the Greek word homologeo. And what that means is to say the same thing as or to agree. Homo comes from the word same. Logeo means from to speak forth and it has the um, association of speaking forth from a stage. And so to confess is to say the same thing as or, or simply to agree with. And who are we agreeing with? We're agreeing with what God says about our sin. It means to acknowledge his perspective, to agree with his diagnosis. And we know, don't we, what that is? It doesn't matter where you are in the Bible. You can start back in Genesis and you can see that the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Or you can come forward to Hebrews and you can see that nothing is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows we sin. He sees the hidden parts of our heart, whether we like it or not. The question for us is whether we will agree with his diagnosis. Will we admit that to God? And you see some of those admissions, don't we, in the, in the Psalms of the Old Testament, the penitential Psalms. There's seven of those in total, but my favorite, and I'm sure it's a favorite for many of you, is Psalm 32. David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. True Christians feel the reality, the weightiness, and the relief of those words, do we not? True Christians believe that sin is breaking God's law. They recognize they've sinned and that they do sin, and they honestly acknowledge their sin to God, agreeing with his assessment of their condition. But true Christians do not practice sin. Now, the reason I wanted to dwell on this doctrine so long is because it makes the next doctrinal truth all the sweeter. So far we've looked at the doctrine of the incarnation, of the trinity and of sin and the next one that John sets forth is the doctrine of the atonement or more specifically the doctrine of propitiation. Take a look at chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's the good news of the gospel, is it not? That he propitiated our sins. That word propitiate means to satisfy. You see, God requires more than just confession of sin to forgive it. He requires payment. Romans 6.23 tells us that the, the penalty or the wages that we've earned for our sin is death. Man has sinned against God and therefore the penalty is death and separation from God. Only death can pay for sin. And Jesus came to pay that price in our place. He died in our place. He was the sacrifice that propitiated sin. Chapter seven, uh, sorry, Verse 7 of, of chapter 2 puts it this way. John says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 
You know, our family has just um, finished reading through uh, the Bible for the first time with Jonathan. And um, so we've started again. We're back in Genesis. And uh, this week we were reading about the fall. And you know the story. Um, God created Adam and Eve as part of his perfect world. And Adam and Eve broke God's commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of their sin, death enters the world. But what struck me um, this week in particular was the story of Cain and Abel that follows close on the heels of the fall. And you see, as the result of the fall, um, God requires death, and so Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel must have been instructed by God to offer sacrifice. They were to offer an animal to propitiate their own sin. But Cain refused to offer that sacrifice. Instead, he offered the fruit of the ground, and God was displeased with Cain's obedience. And we remember that that provokes Cain to jealousy over his brother Abel, who was righteous and done what God had commanded and offered the correct sacrifice. And so Cain hates Abel, and he lures him into the countryside, and there he murders him. And what I learned this week was um, that the term the Bible uses for that act of Cain murdering Abel is the same term that is used when God instructs his people on how to kill an animal for sacrifice. It's the same term used to describe the slitting of the throat of the animal that was prepared for sacrifice. So what we literally have in this account is Cain sacrificing Abel because his own sacrifice was not acceptable. And the first death of a human then that's recorded in the Bible is righteous Abel, who is sacrificed on account of someone else's sin. What we have right at the beginning of the Bible is an account where the righteous person takes the penalty of death. And Abel is then a shadow that points forward to Jesus. And the rest of the Old Testament unpacks that further, and in particular in the practice of the sacrifice that's instituted under the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus is the only truly righteous one, though, remember. And he offers himself on the cross as the once-for-all sacrifice that propitiates or washes us clean from sin. All sin. Sin in the past, sin in the present, sin that's to come, is covered by his blood for those who believe. And so John's point in that letter is clear. If you confess your sin and believe in Jesus, he cleanses you from that. He satisfies the righteous demands of God in your place. He propitiates your sin. And so that leaves us then with two doctrines, and both of these are concentrated on the person of Jesus, as is absolutely fitting for John. Now, the first is um, something that appears again and again, and it's probably the thing that struck me, apart from the doctrine of sin, as being the most um, repetitive phrase throughout this epistle. Listen and, and see if you can pick up on it here. I'll just read a couple of verses. Um, Chapter 1, verse 3, John writes, Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John uh, 3, verse 23, And this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And then in five, uh, chapter 5, verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding. Again and again and again, as you read this epistle, John hammers this point home, that Jesus is God's son. He will not let his reader escape with any other view. And that's important because you remember to be 
the Son of God means to be of the same nature as God. And that was something the Jews hated about what Jesus claimed for himself. You might remember back in uh, the 22nd chapter of Matthew in his trial before the Jewish leaders, uh, the, the Jewish high priests demanded of Jesus and they asked him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Sorry, chapter uh, 26 of Matthew. And Jesus replies, yes, it is as you say. And how did they respond? They sought to crucify him. They accused him of blasphemy and demanded his death because they knew what he was claiming, that it meant to be of the same nature as God. And that to them was anathema. So more than 50 years later then, what we have is the Apostle John writing his testimony and he says, remember what Jesus said back then? That was true. I can testify to the truth of it. Under threat of exile, I maintain that Jesus is the Son of God. The reason is so important and and the reason that that makes its um, way onto the shortlist of essential doctrines in this letter is because only the Son of God can propitiate sins. I don't know if you've thought about this, but try and follow the logic here with me. We said before that man has sinned against God and that the penalty for that sin is death. So man must die for his sins. And so God became man in the person of Jesus Christ to pay for sin. That offering had to be genuine. It had to be a living, breathing man in order to rightfully take the punishment on men's behalf. But that is not enough. Jesus cannot just be man because all men are sinners. And a sinner can't take the punishment for another sinner. He has his own punishment, his own debt to pay. Only a righteous man could take the punishment for the unrighteous. And we know that there is no unrighteous. Only God is righteous. And so it is essential to understand and confess that in addition to Jesus being truly man, he was also truly God. And when he did so, when he, when he took our punishment on the cross, he did so as man, but he also did so as a righteous man because he was God. God himself bore the penalty of sin. And those twin truths that Jesus is fully man and fully God are the centerpiece of true Christianity. You cannot be saved by anything less than that or different from that. And so John is at great pains to pin us on this. Do we believe it? Unless you believe it, you cannot be saved. So we move then to our final doctrine, which is the sure return of Jesus. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, my little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Jesus will come again to gather up those who have placed their hope and their trust in him and to judge those who have rejected him. It is not a question of if, it is simply a question of when. And so John exhorts his children in the faith to be abiding in him that they may have confidence and not be ashamed when he appears. The hope of that we have as Christians, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus will come again and he will restore us. He will do away with our sin. He will grant us new bodies 
and he will take us to be with him. And that is the true Christian belief and hope. It's the sort of thing that we should be setting our hope on this morning as we think about what comes next for this church. It's the, the thing that we're eager to see happen and that we're organising our lives towards. And so we've looked then at the essential truths of the Incarnation, of the Trinity, of sin, of atonement, of the Sonship of God and the return of Jesus. These are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. They are the precious cargo of Crusoe's ship. These are the things the church must maintain as truth, whatever lies ahead. Now hopefully, as I've gone through that list, you can honestly say I assent to that, I believe that, I agree with that. That is wonderful. But there is a danger in that. And John won't let us escape that. The danger is that we only ascend to these things intellectually. And so he applies two further short tests to the church. He asks, not just is your doctrine right, but are you living in obedience? And are you loving one another? We're just going to look at these really fast as we close our time together. Um, Have a look with me there at um, chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, Sorry, we'll start in verse 3 and we'll make our way down to to verse 6. 1 John 2, starting in verse 3 and going down to verse 6. He writes, And by this we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 6 there is really the summary. If I could uh, condense all of 1 John into one verse, that would be the verse I would pick. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. It's not just enough to assent to the intellectual truths, the theology of, of Christian faith. It's not enough just to pass that test. A true Christian must demonstrate right moral conduct in their lives by walking the way Jesus walked. And we've considered one aspect of that in terms of the obedience to his commandments uh, and practicing righteousness already. And the other um, corollary of that, the the, um, worthy partner of it, is are we walking in love towards one another? And that's the final test that John introduces. So flip forward to um, 1 John 3, verses 11 to 18, and we'll close with this. 1 John 3, 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. By this we know, love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is that indispensable feature, is it not, of the Christian life? Um, It's pervasive throughout the New Testament. In Romans 5, uh, Paul reminds us that God has shed his love abroad in our hearts. And in Ephesians 5, he says again that that love that's shed abroad in our hearts is supposed to produce the the spiritual fruit of love. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul reminds us that God himself teaches us to love through the spirit that he's given to us. But probably the most significant command on this is the one that Jesus made in the upper room discourse to his disciples, including John. We remember that occasion over 50 years before this letter was penned. And John is still captivated by that command. Um, It's recorded for us in the 13th chapter of of John's uh, gospel. Sorry, the the, um, upper room discourse is not recorded there, but, um, but this commandment Jesus gives is, and he says, A new commandment I give to you, my disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, he commands that as a new commandment. It's not new in the sense that Previously, God didn't care about love. We see that again and again. We've already talked about Leviticus in the 19th chapter of Leviticus. You can go and find reference to the command to love one another. What is new in this commandment that Jesus gives is that it has a newness in it in the sense that it's in the way that I have loved you, you will also to love one another. Never before did we have an example of this kind of love modeled for us as we have in Jesus a love that manifests itself in a magnanimous, self-effacing, self-sacrificing affection that he demonstrates. And then he says, you should love each other like I have loved you. And John repeats that to his congregation 50 years later. He admits that it's costly, it's practical, it's going to cause you to give up your time, your possessions, to meet your brother's needs but it models the sacrificial love of our saviour who came and gave himself in our place. And so we're left with that ringing truth and that exhortation in John's letter, not just to ascend to doctrinal truth, but also to obedience and to love. And so in summary, the epistle of 1 John presents the core truths of the Christian faith and it exhorts us to examine ourselves to see if we're walking in those truths. I said at the beginning, it's been an honour to be here um, and to be invited by Mara and Dara, and I can't say that I can, or I can't presume to speak on their behalf today, but as we celebrate 50 years of Thornlands Bible Church and we look forward to what's to come, I would hazard a guess that their exhortation to us would be the same as the Apostle John in his third letter, where he writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's it, really, isn't it? The thing that delights this old apostle, the thing that delights God is to hear that his children are walking in the truth. And that means to believe the true triune God of the Bible. To believe that the Son of God became a man. To believe and confess and agree with God's assessment that that we are sinners. To trust that Jesus propitiated the wrath of God. And that he could do that because he was the Son of God, the fully righteous one. And it means to believe that he will come again and to set our hope on that and to walk obediently and by the power of the Spirit humbly conform our actions towards his will. And it means doing that in love for one another, sacrificially, like Jesus loved us. Friends, there can be no better exhortation today than that of the old apostle, 50 years after establishment of the church, to remember these core truths of the Christian faith, to recall the narrow road of true Christianity and to walk in these things. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you 
for inspiring John to write these words, not just to the congregation of the churches in Ephesus, but to us, God, for our benefit. Lord, if there are things that we've heard today that we don't believe, that we don't confess, Lord, would you help our hearts to understand these things and to bring them before you. Lord, I thank you for this church and its faithfulness and I ask that you have your hand upon it in 50 years more, that you may delight in seeing them walking in the truth. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.